0: Um, just an interesting uh, way to think about the different functions of money, which is it's hard to get your mind around um, because we're so used to money, and in a, a little bit what we're doing is we're, we're uh, decoupling things that are naturally coupled for us in the concept of money. Um, but one way that I was thinking about it is something that I saw recently on, a Perry, on an episode of Perry Mason. Do you guys watch Perry Mason? Do you know about Perry Mason? He's like a, a lawyer, right? Yeah. He's played by Raymond Burr, who's also the villain in, in Rear Window, and a very strange, charismatic actor uh, from the 1950s. I think he died in the 80s. He was also on a show called Ironsides later on. And he is a strange, charismatic, very powerful presence both on screen and on TV. And he plays a defense lawyer. These are a series of novels that were written by, I think, a syndicate um, under the name Earl Stanley Gardner in the early-ish <coughs> and middle part of the 20th century. And Perry <coughs> Mason always figures out who done it. And the way, what always happens is there's a courtroom confrontation where he brings a witness up and then he starts badgering and hectoring the the witness and the witness finally breaks down and admits that they did it, that the defendant was innocent and that they had framed the defendant and so on. And apparently there's something like 167 hours of Perry Mason, which is you could watch it nonstop for a week without going to sleep and without eating and without going to the bathroom and you would uh, be able to watch Perry Mason for the entire week. There may be even more than that. Actually, I think I'm underestimating how much there is. There's a lot of Perry Mason. Perry Mason is fun. if You, you can watch it on MeTV and you should because do you have better things to do with your time? Anyhow, there was, a, there was one I watched recently which used an old trick that seemed relevant here to think about money, which is that someone has a $1,000 bill and they're paying someone to do something, but they don't trust the person to actually do it. So what they do is... So what do you do under that condition? Is this a familiar trope for you? It's not quite a TV trope, but maybe a mystery trope or a manipulation trope or a game trope? $1,000 bill... And you want someone to do something, and they won't do the, they are not going to do it because they don't trust you to pay them, and you're not going to give them the money until they do it. So what do you do? Yeah. Half now, half later. Half now, half later, but it's a $1,000 bill. Rip it in half. Yes. <laughs> See, it's like obvious to you, right? Did that just occur to you, or have you seen this like...
1: Can't you like tape it back together and it still counts as a 1000 Yes, bill?
0: yeah. So was that your idea just now, or had you I mean, seen this anywhere?
1: I it my head as a joke, and then I was like, that would work.
0: Well, remember we did that, I did that in uh, oh, yeah. Infinity. right. I ripped a $5 bill in half. Did, do you know if they put it back together? I don't
1: know, I, I never asked. I, I would assume they would have. Two would've. people won a game, and his thing was like, if you win the game, you get $5, but two people won, so he just ripped
0: it. So they had to figure out what to do with it, and I'm sure what they did was they taped it back together, and... and um, one of them gave the other two fifty, or maybe they went out for a milkshake or something. Who knows? <laughs> so at any rate, yeah, you rip it in half, and what does that do? I mean, you have to... If either
1: person doesn't uphold their end of the
0: bargain, it's completely useless, so kind of both people to... Right. So what function of money is being destroyed, at least temporarily, being disabled by ripping a $1,000 bill in half, and what function or functions are not being disabled. Yeah? Well, it's exchange value is being disabled because no one's going to accept this. Oh, here's $500 mm-hmm. for a right. half-$1,000 bill. Right. So as so, it's being disabled as a medium of exchange. <coughs> it can no longer... So the three functions of money that we were talking about, medium of exchange... Um, store of value and accounting measure or accounting um, unit, the medium of exchange is what's being destroyed. You can't exchange half a $1,000 bill because it's not worth anything as exchange. What about as an accounting unit or as a measure of value? Is that being destroyed? Why not? Because um, it's still, it's just holding the value of it on reserve, essentially the action of ripping it in half and then putting it back together. So it still will have the value
1: once the transaction is completed.
0: Right, so it will have, so it will have the value, so right now it's a store of value, even though it's not liquid. So one of the one of the crucial words, does anyone know technically what liquidity means in economics, Andrea? It's as close to cash as possible. Yeah, well, it's what cash is. Cash is pure liquidity. And what pure liquidity means is <coughs> that you can exchange it for anything that's for sale. So when you have liquidity, basically you have something cash or cash-like. And what the $1,000 bill no longer has once it's ripped in half is it doesn't have any liquidity. It can't be used as a medium of exchange. However, it still is a store of value, even though that value is completely non-liquid because each person has half of it, and therefore what they have is... The store of half a thousand dollars is being stored in the half bill, but only as long as the other half bill continues to exist and is potentially available to put the two halves together. And it's definitely an accounting unit because each person has half the money that will eventually should, if all things work out, go from one person to the other. So if that makes sense, that ripping a $1,000 bill in half or ripping any amount of money in half is a way to disable it as a medium of exchange without destroying the other two functions of money that you find in Aristotle and later in Adam Smith, that might give you some insight into how that works. I also want to say a little bit more because etymology is so interesting. I'm not trying not to overwhelm you with etymology, but this is interesting. Is do you remember what the etymology of money, of interest is rather in Greek, which Aristotle points out, Andrea? Yeah, giving birth or producing. So it comes from a word that means to give birth. And it therefore comes to mean what is bread. So interest is what is bread. And the idea that interest is what is bread comes, gives us another... So in Greek, the word is tokos for interest and also for, from a verb, um, um, takto, which means to breed, tecto, which means to breed. Tecto also gives us our word technology or techne, And so how does that work? Well, the idea is that techne is the act of producing a craft. It's craftsmanship or production of something that requires skilled labor. Not necessarily skilled labor, but that's how we think of it now, that technology requires skilled labor, that um, what is technical requires learning. So techne actually also means it's the child of or the offspring or the production of the skilled worker or the skilled producer. So that commodities are like money or like interest, which is they are produced as offspring from something else. However, when its use value then what you have is techne, something that's usable. When it's exchange value, then you have money breeding money, and there you have interest. So again, notice that those things are connected to each other. They are things produced by other things. But the idea of being fruitful and multiplying is something that has to do with giving birth in the living world. And when interest or usury is used, what you have is something that isn't alive breeding something that isn't alive. So all those things, they go back to the same root, but they diverge in their meaning depending on whether they're felt as morally good Something which is producing more life, or morally evil, something which is destroying life. So, did you guys read the Pound poem, Usura? I um, can't. Uh, so, what I'm going to, or what owner is so, it's already up there. So, I sent you the link, but you don't actually have to do it. Um, is Pound reading the poem himself? Do you guys, do you guys know about Ezra Pound at all? What do you know? Uh,
1: he was a poet. <laughs>
0: Okay, hence hence he wrote a poem. Good. Oh yeah, he's that he's that poet guy. Yeah. yeah. Nothing else known about him. You don't well, you'll see his picture. It's one of those recordings, one of those YouTubes with just the still of his picture, but that's fine. He was he's often regarded as the founder of modernism or one of the founders of modernism of twentieth century poetry and was he's really interesting and really problematic. So do you guys know who T.S. Eliot is? So Pound essentially was took T.S. Eliot under his wing, and The Wasteland, which is Eliot's most famous poem, is a poem that was twice as long when Eliot wrote it, and Pound cut it in half. And you can actually find that the, the manuscripts with Pound's cuttings and suggestions are have been published. Pound was also a friend of James Joyce's, people know who he is, author of Ulysses, uh, often regarded as the (coughs) greatest English novelist of the 20th century, and was a person who was turning against Victorian poetry. He said poetry should be difficult, should be about the Well, he has a book called The ABC of Reading where where he gives a famous definition of poetry as news that stays news, that poetry should not be so much about personal feelings on the poet's part. And he went back to lots of things you can say about him. I'm just trying to give you a very quick sense of what he did that was different. He went back to old troubadour poetry as a model, and he also went to Chinese poetry as a model. And Pound is most responsible of any Westerner in the history of Western poetry for the introduction of Chinese and also Japanese poetry into in translation into English and into Western European languages. And he did a bunch of translations himself. He was very, very fond of Li Po, who is uh, often regarded as the greatest Chinese poet, and Pound did some wonderful translations of Li Po. He was also a really crazy crank, and his craziness came close to getting him executed by the U.S. government because he was a huge admirer of Mussolini's, And he lived in Italy, he moved to Italy, he was an American expat, he moved to Italy and he supported fascism really, really strongly. And during the war, he did radio broadcasts on behalf of the fascist government. While the U.S. was fighting against Italy, he was broadcasting about how Mussolini was great and how Italian fascism was great and how their, what, they had, what they were doing economically was absolutely the right thing to do. He was also a believer in a crank theory that some people are kind of resuscitating now of how a society should be run, which is called social credit, which uh, was a strange theory of money, but one that he was very, very into, and, but the main thing to know is that he was a fascist. After the war he was arrested, he wrote some of the cantos, which is his gigantic book, his major work, his gigantic book of poems, in prison, first in a prisoner of war camp under American supervision, and then later, while he, when he was being accused of treason, He was eventually not put on trial for treason because a psychiatrist whom I actually met when I was giving a talk for Brandeis, I met one of the psychiatrists who examined him, and because there were so many people on his side, like T.S. Eliot and William Carlos Williams and other really major figures within American literary culture at the time, they cooked up the idea that he was insane. Instead of a traitor, he was not put on trial because he, what he had done was, was, was insane rather than criminal. And he was hospitalized in a mental hospital where many people came to visit him in Washington, D.C. for, I don't remember how many years, but it may, may have been 10 or 12 years, do you remember? I think it was 10 or 12 years. Eventually, he was let go and moved back to Italy, where he maintained an almost total silence when talking to the press or anyone else, bitter and angry and feeling how terrible it was that fascism had lost. And he, a friend's father, who was a, who was a major artist was sitting in a cafe in Venice and Pound walked in and he actually did a drawing of Pound at the next table so uh, I actually, my friend gave me that drawing so I'm very happy about this but he was specifically pro-fascist because he's anti-semitic and he was anti-semitic because he was anti-usury and he saw, just as the Christians do in The Merchant of Venice he saw the Jews as the reason that everything was so terrible, that it was Jewish moneylenders who were lending money out at usurious rates of interest that caused everything that was terrible about the world. So he does have this great canto on Usura, which is the one that you read, which is claimed to be not anti-Semitic, but it's clearly at least the root of his anti-Semitism. And, or you could say his anti-usury attitude is, turns into anti-Semitism, or his anti-Semitism takes the form of being anti-usury. And the question, how anti-usury should one be and what is usury, that's something we'll talk about. But get the poem up if you have it, and you can listen to Pound reading it. So this is before the war that he's reading it.
1: And so that you don't continually misunderstand, usually and interest are not the same thing. Usually is a charge made for the use of money regardless of production and often regardless even of the possibilities of production. <laughs> With Usura hath no man a house of good stone, each block cut smooth and well fitting, that design might cover their face. With Usura hath no man a painted paradise on his church wall, our friends, view. For where virgins receive a message, and Halo. I
0: didn't realize they had that corny music on this recording. Let's see if we can find one without that. Um, If you have the poem up, let's just talk about what he's saying. So this is the way people read poetry in the 30s. They were kind of over the top. Of course, people are over the top still, but they're over a different top. And that kind of chanting sense of words coming from another world, it's kind of Game of Thrones way of reading poetry. You can imagine him doing that on Game of Thrones. With Uzura, so Uzura Okay, good. Yeah, do it. Thank you. With Uzura
1: hath no man the house of good stone, each block cut smooth and well fitting, uh, that delight might cover their face. With Uzura hath no man the painted paradise on his church wall harp as or where virgin receiveth message and halo projects from incision. With Uzura seeth no man Gonzaga, his heirs and his concubines. No picture is made to endure nor to live with, but it is made to sell and sell quickly. With Usura sin against nature is thy bread evermore stale rags. Is thy bread dry as paper, with no mountain wheat, no strong flour. With usura, the line grows thick. With Uzura is no clear demarcation, and no man can find sight for his dwelling. Stonecutter is kept from his stone, weaver is kept from his loom. With usura, wool comes not to market, sheep bringeth no gain with Uzura. Usura as a morrin, Usura blunteth the needle in the maid's hand and stoppeth the spinner's cunning. Pietro Lombardo came not by Usura, Duccio came not by Usura, nor Pierre de la Francesca, Zuan Belin not by Usura, nor was La Calunnia painted, came not by Usura Angelico, came not Amorogio Predis, no church of cut stone, sign the Damo, may fake it. Not by Usura Saint Trophim, not by Usura Saint Hilaire. Usura rusteth the chisel, it rusteth the craft and the craftsman. It gnaweth the thread in the loom, none learneth to weave gold in her pattern. Azure hath a canker By Uzora, Caramacy is Emerald findeth no memling. Uzora slayeth the child in the womb It stayeth the young man's courting It hath brought palsy to bed and lieth between the young bride And her bridegroom, contra naturam They have brought whores for Lucis Corpses are set to banquet at behest of Uzura. And so that you don't continually misunderstand, usually interest are not the same thing. Usually is a charge made for the use of money, regardless of production, and often regardless even of the possibilities of production. I now
0: repeat the theme in Canto 51. Okay, thank you. So, what's the difference between usury and interest? Do you think he's claiming? So that you don't misunderstand, yes, Joseph. So I think usury is his definition of it is what we consider interest nowadays, and his definition of interest would be just a a cut of what you produce. Okay. So it's like a it's like be a a charge on assets versus interest. That's the way I'm understanding it. Okay, so a usury is a charge on assets. Say more about that. No, so his definition of interest would be, well, is that right? All right, so let's, let's, let's think about it in terms of the Merchant of Venice. So in the Merchant of Venice, which you guys read for today, I'm sure, and are ready for the quiz I'm about to give, I'm certainly positive. <coughs> Okay, good. Just wanted to be sure you were ready. In The Merchant of Venice, the situation (coughs) is one where there are, I mean, this is one of, this is, I, I think that Buchan is pretty good about describing the different financial situations of the different kinds of character, so that you have a merchant. Who's that? Antonio in The Merchant of Venice, okay. You have a money lender, Shylock. You have a rich woman for whom money is not business. That is, who is old money as opposed to new money. Everyone knows that distinction between old and new money. And the idea about old money is that, uh, that one, one of the... One of the sayings, one of the proverbs that Marx really likes as telling, that he has a footnote about in Capital, is the old proverb, pecunia non alet. And I'm sure your Latin is good enough to remember that that means money does not smell. So that's why people put in their mouths, (laughs) it's disgusting. But money doesn't smell means that it may come out of really disgusting circumstances, people make money (coughs) often out of disgusting things, mining of disgusting things, but also thievery, usury, all sorts of ways uh, that people cheat each other, but money itself doesn't smell. And so its origin is not something that attaches to it, that stays stuck to it. That's part of the idea of Bitcoin, is that you can pay something with Bitcoin and get recorded the fact that it's been paid and who it's been paid to and so on. But once it leaves your hands, because you paid it, with Bitcoin. Its history is only the history of the fact that it's been exchanged and into whose hands it now is. It doesn't have the kind of history that checks have, for example, or the credit card bills have, for example. If you pay something with a credit card, it's going to be on your bank statement that you're the one who paid it and the government is going to be able to figure out who it was who (coughs) paid this thing with a credit card and Snowden is going to show that the government is keeping track of these things and so on. With Bitcoin, the transaction is recorded and where the money goes is recorded for good for that amount of money, but there's otherwise no history of the money, which is why it's a cryptocurrency. It's a cryptocurrency because it's impossible to decrypt unless you have the key, but it's a cryptocurrency because like cash it doesn't carry its history around with it. And therefore, the idea that money doesn't smell is the idea that money doesn't carry its history around with it. It's washed clean in each transaction. Some of you may know, I don't know if this is still true, but it was a really interesting factoid of the 90s that something like 20% of fifty dollar bills in Miami. What am I going to say? Do you know? Have cocaine on them. Have cocaine on them. Yeah. So uh, people were kind of smelling through money. That is what they were. What people were doing it was a nineties thing. Was they would roll up fifty dollar bills to snort cocaine through. And fifty dollar bills. Sorry. Why fifty dollars? Like because they money? were showing that they were that they had a lot of money. And they that, have cocaine. Well, they don't have cocaine for long because cocaine has mm-hmm. use value. It also has exchange value, but eventually it has use value. But the $50 bill is pure exchange value, which you're showing your, your wealth. You mean you're showing, you already know your wealth because you have cocaine. Is it pure exchange value if you're using it for cocaine? Well, that's the point. It turns out you can use. It's like, it's like going to the next stall and saying, do you have change for five? There are uses for paper, but one of them, here is the reason it's a fifty dollar bill rather than just a just a piece of paper which is rolled up is that you're also showing the exchange value that you have access to. So the idea there is something like what Aristotle is saying, which is that you're boasting that you're rich and money does have the use value that you can show that you're rich. This is one of the things that, in a way, the converse of this is what the Kawabata story is about. The person who's pawning money is trying to show that he's not rich because he has to go to the pawn shop, but all he has to pawn is money itself, apparently. So So why he would do that, maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that. But at any rate, old money, is money that doesn't have cocaine in it. Old money is what the Sacklers were hoping that their money would turn into before they were caught selling Oxycontin and pushing it even at the expense of untold pain and untold misery. And if there's anyone from the Sackler family in this classroom, I take it back. But I don't. So that idea is the robber barons. It's also, do you guys know the Godfather movies? So what happens in Godfather 1 is the family establishes itself through lots of really violent crime and what happens in Godfather 2 is that Al Pacino kind of tries to get out of that but it still he gets out of it through violent crime and then in Godfather 3 what they want to be is just an old established Italian family with the church uh, with the blessing of the church because of all the money they're giving to the church, and what they're doing is they're disinfecting their money. So old money is disinfected money, and money disinfects pretty quickly, but those who come from really old families want to say, no, our money really is different from money that these people are making through venture capitalism or through, um, through, through buying and selling and exchange and through banking. So in The Merchant of Venice, the old money is Portia's money, and she's just wealthy, and she has lots of money. She has untold money available to her as long as she marries the person her dead father wants her to marry. And But he has money, which is old money. That's the idea. Buchan has a nice parentheses in which he says, which he no doubt earned or his family earned which comes to Portia through the cutthroat dealings of her ancestors but those cutthroat dealings are not part of the play anymore they're not in the history of the characters we can know this if the characters were real that's where her money would come from but what she is instead is someone who lives in the country who lives therefore on land it's a little bit like Downton Abbey if you guys watch that or know about it And the idea of Downton Abbey is they're really not good at making money, but they're really good at being old aristocrats. And when they have to start making money, it becomes an issue, and they actually, if you've seen the show, they need a new person to come in who actually does know how to make money, even though he comes from the wrong class, dear. And that is, this is is an old story. It's why you have the social register. Being rich doesn't get you into the social register. Being Trump doesn't get you into the social register. Being one of the 400 original families of New Amsterdam does get you into the social register, as long as you have money. Just being, one, being a descendant of one of the 400 original families won't get you money. I mean, won't get you into the social register. But that plus money inherited from back then Will So that's Portia Then there's Antonio, who buys and trades And he buys things abroad So he has money, which he uses to purchase things He gets the things that he purchases, they come by ship And then he sells the things that he's purchased And he's a merchant And then there's Shylock, who doesn't have old money and who doesn't buy and sell beautiful objects, and I think Buchan, again, is really good at quoting the moment when Solerio and Selenio talk about how obsessed they would be if all of their wealth was on board ship, that they would worry about all of this stuff just making the seas beautiful, but losing the value of it, there's none of that for Shylock. Shylock talks about Antonio being a good man, and he, what he means by good man, do you remember this? Shylock is talking to Bassanio, who says, "You can that that Antonio will stand surety; he will pay you back." And Shylock says to him, "Well, Antonio is a good man," which is supposed to you could almost imagine that as. Yes, that's what this play is about, is how Antonio's a good man. And Bassanio says, have you heard aught to the contrary? And do you remember Shylock's response to that? Yeah. He
1: says no, um, but his meaning is that he's sufficient.
0: Yeah, you have mistook my meaning, he says. I don't mean morally good. I mean... That he, you can count on him to have money and to pay it back, but then he says, "Do you have it up there? Are yeah. you on that?" So, but ships are but boards. That part. Yeah. So read it. Uh,
1: the ships are but boards. Sailors but men. There be land rats and water rats, water thieves and land thieves. I mean pirates. Okay, so
0: he's animals. actually making a joke that almost no one, no actor. Does anymore, and I think most people don't don't know what it is. But it's not pirates. It's there be land rats and water rats, and then make the joke, make the make the lame pun. Water thieves and land. And then the next. I
1: mean pirates.
0: No, not pirates, but pie. No, it's spelled pirates. It says pirates. But the.
1: Talking about like school? Is that what
0: you're talking about? Oh, like pirates? No, no, no. You guys are too good. No, pie rats there be land rats and water rats, and oh. then by, by that he means pie rats. So here's another way of making money, which is by boarding ships full of goods and stealing them, the way the English did at um, Cadiz, which is another thing Buchan mentions in 1598. So there, so it's open to thievery. So here's a, yet another way of making money which Shylock is against, which is thievery. So there is inheriting it, which is the good old-fashioned way to make money, is to inherit it. There is trading, which is what's happening as Venice becomes a major capitalist state. There is lending money out on... Interest, or maybe on usury, and this is what Joseph was was introducing as what Pound and then, um, was introducing as a difference, and then Joseph was starting to explicate, and then there's sheer out-and-out out thievery, which is what the pie rats do, and so for Shylock, it's sailors are but men, and ships are but boards. He reduces everything to its most material way of being. Whereas for Portia and maybe for Bassanio, lead isn't only lead. What is it? How many of you guessed that it was going to be the lead casket? That was kind of easy. (laughs) It's like, oh, yeah, clearly the two caskets that are similar, it's going to be one of those. Gold or silver But lead, nah Um, Yeah, I think I think the point is And Shakespeare wants The point to be That everyone watching The play knows That they would pass The test It's like It's a no-brainer It's like Not a TV trope But a Shakespeare trope That if you're given Gold, silver, or lead You pick lead If you're given Cinderella or Two Stepsisters Who do you pick? Yeah They
1: even
0: do it In in that Indiana Jones movie Oh, I don't remember this Yeah, in the Mm -hmm. third one Cup of the carpenter. Yeah. Oh, That's okay. Wood. I
1: mean, there's
0: like a million that are yeah, 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 yeah. Right, good. So clearly it's the lead. And so what Bassanio does is he doesn't reduce Portia to lead or Portia's portrait to lead, but he sees lead itself as something which isn't boasting, which isn't claiming a value of its own. And just because of that, just because lead is so soft-spoken, he decides to pick the lead. And so there are two vectors, you could say, in The Merchant of Venice. There's the Shylock vector, which is good means sufficient, that is, able to pay back. Sufficient in the same way as in the Kawabata story, the pawnbroker's son would need to go look at the house to see whether the person that he's lending money to is sufficient, has enough of his own possession to pay back the money. So Shylock is taking good is a word meaning sufficient. Mercy is a word meaning compelled. The sailors are simply human beings, ships are simply boards, men are actually rats because men, sailors, goes to men, goes to pirates, goes to rats. Water thieves and land thieves, water rats and land rats, land rats and water rats, I mean pirates. Portia goes the other way. For Portia, everything that looks like it's simply an object becomes more and more important not for what it is as an object but for its symbolic value. What's the most important aspect of that? Do you remember what Act 5 is about? Act 5 is only a single scene. Shylock is gone. He's lost bigly. In Act 4, and he goes off depressed and miserable. And then Act 5, there's a kind of coda. Yeah?
1: Isn't Act 5 when the couples all kind of come back together and the I think Bassanio and um, Lorenzo have given, it back, given their rings away and um, I think Act 5 is... It's Bassanio and Gradiano have given their rings yeah, away. Gratiano, yeah, Gradiano, yeah. And... Um, they come back to, like, their wives. And, like, how dare you have given away, like, our ring this, like, symbol of our
0: love? Yeah, so the ring is not important because it has particular monetary value. The ring is, in fact, important because it doesn't have a whole lot of monetary value. It's symbolic. The, more, the bigger the rock, the less symbolic of love it is. That's That could be the moral of The Merchant of Venice. The point about the ring, and it's what Bassinia says, is that it's got a little inscription in it. It's just Cutler's poetry. It's, it's a not very valuable ring with a not very valuable line of poetry in it, which is love me and leave me not. And it doesn't have that much value for itself. That's why Portia in disguise says, this is all I'm asking from you is the ring. Remember the trick? What's the trick? How does she get the ring when she's in disguise?
1: Doesn't she, like, ask for it as payment
0: for, like, saving... What's this Antonio. Antonio. Mm-hmm. Because they walk,
1: She's like, oh, give it to me. That's all I want is payment. I think they're hesitant to give it to her, but they eventually do. Or so uh-huh. she's, like, seeing if they'll
0: give away the ring. Right. Yeah, so Portia there is a little bit like God in the Bible, which is that he, that she is tempting really hard, she's tempting Bassanio to break a vow that he's made. And it's a really difficult temptation. It's not a temptation where we think Bassanio is wrong to give away the ring, given what he knows. And he gives away the ring... How... Justify him, someone. I mean, we know it's wrong because we know that's Portia. And it's one of those cases where the audience has a knowledge which ironizes what's going on on stage. But if you were defending Bassanio, how would you justify his giving away the ring? He swore he'd never give it away, but he gives it away. Yeah?
1: I mean, if it weren't for Antonio, he would have never been able to, to
0: marry Portia. Okay, but he's giving it away. Antonio's fine. And the lawyer is who is Portia in disguise is asking for the ring for symbolic payment. That's what he says. That I just want this as symbolic payment first. He says, "Just well pleased is paid enough, and I'm well pleased. I did I did what I wanted to do, and I'm glad that I did it. And, however, if you insist on giving me something for what I did." Which he does do He's saying, you know, don't go away Without taking something For the fact that you saved my friend's life Plus saved him 3,000 ducats Although that's not the important part But that you saved his life Take something for that So notice that what begins as an act of friendship Now Bassanio wants to turn that Into some kind of monetary transaction It's like when someone takes you out to dinner and you insist on paying half. What you're doing is you're refusing an act of generosity on their part. And insisting on paying yourself, if you insist too strongly, what you're doing is showing ingratitude. Because what you're doing is saying, I don't want to show you gratitude. I want to pay my own way. So there's a little bit of that, not a lot, but a little bit of it, in Bassanio saying, and Antonio saying, take something for what you've done. Make this into a financial transaction. And then Portia says, okay, I'll take the littlest thing that you have, namely that ring. And when Bassanio doesn't want to give it to her, Portia's amazed that... I'm just asking for a little symbol when you offer to pay me. I'm being kind enough to accept your offer and not just lord it over you as though I'm an aristocrat who just goes around saving the day and is superior to you. Sure, I'm a lawyer. If you want to pay me something, go ahead and pay me, but it will be a symbolic payment. And... Once it's a symbolic payment Then Bassanio's refusal of it Becomes a symbolic refusal It's as though he's showing much more intense ingratitude By not giving the ring up Than he was showing by offering to pay at all She's saying give me just a symbolic token Of our friendship And he's saying no I'll give you as much money as you want, but no symbolism between us. And that's really hard on him. And he also says, or what Antonio says, Antonio gives him a good reason to give up the ring, even though his wife said not to do it. Do you remember what Antonio says? He says, if your wife isn't a mad woman, she'll totally understand. And the idea there is that Bassanio is actually showing some trust in Portia that she will understand why he violated her one rule. He will understand why he violated the one demand she made of him, which is that he trusted her to see that he had a good reason to violate it. That the rule itself is less important than what the rule symbolized. And in this case, What it's symbolizing from his point of view is his trust that she will understand that he had a reason for breaking the rule. So now the rule symbolizes his trust that she will forgive him for breaking it. And that's an interesting thing for a rule to symbolize. It's a really interesting version of rules are made to be broken. In this case, breaking the rule is the right thing to do. If you've seen A Few Good Men, it's the, that's the kind of tension that arises in that movie between um, the old officer and the new one. So, and he's kind of right. If she hadn't known what he had done, she would have forgiven him. If this had been some other guy and not her who was defending Antonio... Of course she would have forgiven him But the temptation there is A temptation God is tempting Or Portia is tempting Those tempted To trust in them God is tempting Adam and Eve To trust in God Portia is tempting Bassanio to trust in Portia And that's a really hard There's no right answer to that there is no easy way out of that Within the temptation Okay we will pick it up from here next week Try to keep up with the reading Luckily vacation is coming up So lots of time to, to catch up But we will do bring in the Kawabata we'll talk, We will talk about it we're, we're touching down on it from time to time We're like, like skittering over it Like a stone thrown over a body of water But we will get back to it, and we will think about the difference between the pound is asserting exists between usury and interest. Okay, see you guys tomorrow.
1: When she said
0: you first taught me to beg, and now... Now you teach me how a beggar should be answered.
1: Yeah, and then after
0: that you have to do it to her. Yeah. uh, Yeah, first you taught me how to beg, and now you teach me how a beggar should be answered. Two lessons in one transaction. That's great. Yeah, and then there's no way of not losing trace after that. Really, exactly.